Mark 10 verse 32 is where we're picking up this week. And we, uh, we will uh, read through it quickly first, and then we'll pray, and then we'll study. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for, us, do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we ask that you would speak to us by your Spirit tonight through the teaching of your Word. I pray that what I teach may be in accordance with your word, that I might speak your truth, that I might bring out from the text what is there, that you might speak to us all, and speaking, Lord, you might change us, that you might glorify yourself amongst us. Amen. Okay, so now we have the third of the three times that Mark tells us that Jesus spoke to his disciples concerning his death. Mark likes his little triads, as we call them, his uh, little uh, threefold repetitions, and here is the most crucial one, really, of the whole gospel. They've all come subsequent to the beginning of the training of the disciples 
uh, after the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ by Israel, Jesus at that point, as you know, began training those who did embrace and accept his Messiahship. And having got through the first phase of that, being told a little of what the kingdom is going to now be, they clearly hadn't really understood much. And so Jesus, in this second phase of discipleship, has gotten a little bit clearer. And in this period, these three occasions, chapter 8, chapter 9, and now chapter 10, he tells them that he is going to actually die. And each time, as I've shown you, it's clearly been linked, not simply to the, look, you need to understand what's going to happen here, guys, but it's been linked to the concept of their discipleship. So in other words, you're following me, so you need to know where I'm going. Because as I go, and as you follow, you will go somewhere very similar. And that's no exception in the, uh, there'll be no exception to that in the passage that we're studying tonight. So they're on the road, and they're going up to Jerusalem. And this is a marker for us, because as they draw near to Jerusalem in chapter 11, that really is the end of the training per se, and that is the beginning of the, the passion discourse, which is so uh, extended and drawn out and detailed in Mark's gospel. So we're kind of really now coming to the end of that, and they're now on their way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking just ahead of them, and that's relevant because it means that they're talking about things they might not talk about were he exactly by their side, and therefore an earshot. He's walking slightly ahead, so they take the opportunity to talk amongst themselves. And while they are talking and he is slightly ahead, they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So this is what they're trying to communicate amongst themselves, which they wouldn't do if Christ was there. And firstly, that's that they're amazed. Well, what are they amazed about? Well, all we're told is that they're going to Jerusalem. And that really is the issue. The disciples are well aware of the uh, circumstances concerning uh, how much loved, I say sarcastically, Jesus was by the, uh, the Jewish leaders at this point, and they're somewhat amazed that he's heading straight there. And it's no accident that Jesus has already twice said to them, look, they're the ones who are going to ensure that I die right now. And yet here he is walking straight towards them. That's why they're amazed, and equally, that's why they're afraid. Jesus has on these occasions already twice when they, he said, hey, I'm going to die. As I said, he's done so in the context of, and you're going to follow. So there is certainly a degree of concern that he is now heading to Jerusalem. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Now that is very interesting to me. Because we're told that they're amazed that he's going, and those who followed, which seems to be a little bit distinct, I don't want us to think that Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, that you can picture it in your head, he's walking and he's at the front and he's a little bit alone, and then behind him, they are amazed that he's going, that's the, presumably the 12, and then those who follow are afraid. 
Don't think that the, those who follow are precisely the 12. There seems to be a hint here that those who follow are distinct from those who are amazed. So it's as if the disciples are like, the 12 disciples are like, what is he talking about? This isn't going to happen. And they're just amazed that he's heading to Jerusalem. But those who follow, and remember, there's a broader group of disciples beyond the 12 who are part of the traveling band, as it were. It's not just Jesus and the 12. There's a large number of people all following together. And the others seem to be afraid. And that almost, to me, at least it's a possibility, but it might almost suggest that some of the, those who are outside the 12 are perhaps a little bit more clued up here right now than the 12 are. Now that would seem strange to us, would it not? That those who are the closest to Jesus, those who've been trained the most, those who have the, um, the, uh, the deeper discipleship, the closer relationship, would be the ones that will be struggling with the teaching of his death and resurrection, whereas those who are following him might be a little bit more aware. But that's not only, this shouldn't be unusual to us, because he's closer to them. The relationship is deeper. I don't know about you, but I certainly have come across times where there's been somebody within maybe a family group or a social group who is sick unto death. Somebody has something terminal, they're perhaps going to die soon. And often it's the ones who are closest in the family who are like, well, you know, We'll press on, we'll go to the next doctor's appointment, and I just, you know, there's, pot, there's hope here. And everybody else in the family is like, this is it. This is it. And then maybe one of the children or, or, or somebody really close is like, well, you know, on we go. And, you know, like they're all confident that it's going to be okay. And then all the extended family, the cousins and the friends who work, they know that this, this, is, this is it. And sometimes when you're closer, there's that, there's that degree of denial, there's that, that sense that you can't quite accept it. This is Jesus. We've eaten with him, we've walked with him, we've, we've been with him constantly, he's our, he's our friend, we've, he's our beloved, we've given up everything for him. He, he can't die. And yet this message that he's trying to give to them, that he is going to die, and that those who follow him are following him to their cross. It may be something that some of those a little bit less close within the circle have been a little bit more able to pick up on. Just a possibility. Text isn't 100% clear. So Jesus, because of the misunderstanding, has the need to tell them again. So he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He says, see... We're going to Jerusalem. Look, this is it. We're going. This is, the two are connected. My death, us going to Jerusalem, these two things are the same. He's very clear that they're going there now. They're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, and we'll see this passage has a Son of Man inclusio here. Linking this with the following section. The Son of Man, that's his preferred term for himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's the clear um, biblical explanation of who kills Jesus. 
Was it the Jews? Was it the Gentiles? Well, the answer is very clearly both. The Jews condemn him to death and they hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, who will actually carry out the death sentence. And they will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and they will kill him. And so, more than in the previous times, he gives them even more detail of exactly what's going to happen and clearly links it to them walking to Jerusalem right now. And then the amazing bit, which they never seem to pick up on, that's there at the end each time. And after three days, he will rise. Now, we've, we've spoken of this before. How in some of the Jewish rabbinical writings, they wrestled with the Messiah. The Messiah, the Son of God, who is going to be the, the Son of David, the one who will set up the eternal kingdom, and he will rule and he will reign, and his kingdom will have no end. And yet at the same time, this psalms like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's Isaiah 53, where the servant is the suffering servant, and we may speak more of that next time. And the Jewish rabbis of the past, they wrestled with how is it that the Messiah is going to set up a kingdom that will, and he will rule and reign and his kingdom will have no end? And at the same time, how does the Messiah suffer when he does no wrong? The suffering servant of God, how can that be? And the rabbis, as they wrestled with it, one solution they came up with in their writings was that there was Messiah ben David, Messiah the son of David, the Messiah who would rule and who would reign. And then there was Messiah ben Joseph, which, Messiah the son of Joseph, which is deeply ironic, seeing as Joseph was the, uh, the earthly stepfather of Jesus, but named after Joseph, as in Joseph of the Old Testament, who famously suffered so much and did nothing wrong and was faithful to God in his suffering then that would be the Messiah who would suffer. That would be the Messiah of Psalm 22, the Messiah of Isaiah 53. And this problem that the rabbis wrestled with, that the Pharisees had long forgotten about, they weren't interested in a suffering Messiah, they weren't interested in Messiah ben Joseph, they were interested in the Messiah that was going to rule and reign, they were interested in Messiah ben David, that was their interest. But the, the, the rabbis in the past had wrestled with it. And right now, Jesus gives his disciples the solution that the rabbis had never previously worked out. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to fulfill Isaiah 53. And then after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead in anticipation and preparation for the kingdom. That's how it's going to happen. That's the solution. What a class to be in, to be the first ones to whom that mystery was revealed, to be the ones to be given understanding that no one had understood before. And what was the response? Crickets. Did they get it? 
Did they understand now after the third time? Well, what follows immediately makes it 100% clear that they were getting Fs, bottom of the class for the 12. And in fact, in particular, bottom of the class for James and for John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, James and John do not come out of this very well. Matthew makes it even worse because Matthew reveals that their question, though it did come from them, was ultimately delivered through their mother. Got mumsy to ask for them. It, uh, it's a terrible thing. I think the reason Matthew gives us a little bit more detail on this point is because for Matthew, the family collection becomes a little bit more important. We had this question come up in our midweek studies a while back, and uh, the uh, wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, was Salome, who uh, was the sister of Mary, making James and John here first cousins of Jesus. And uh, that's interesting. It's very interesting because it meant that because family was so important and the Jewish connections, that they felt they had a little favor. And that's part of what's behind the indignant response of the other ten, that they would be doing this. But Matthew, who's more interested in, in the Jewishness here, uh, mentions the mother and it embarrasses them even further, I suspect. But for Mark, it's not so much of interest to his Gentile audience. He's simply pointing at James and John, and uh, he is showing their utter failure to understand it. Now, the way they ask the question, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, is basically what you would expect if you were a parent for a toddler or maybe a young child to do. Now, Mum, I'm going to ask you for something, Mum, and I just want you to say yes to whatever it is I ask. Because you know that when you ask what it is that you want, that Mum's going to say no, so you try and get Mum to say yes without knowing what she's saying yes to, and then you say, oh, but you said yes, but you said yes. Can I have whatever I want, Mum? Yeah, what is it? What do you want? Yeah, you can have it. Promise, Mum, yeah. Can I drive the car? No, you're seven. You can't. But you said yes. It does come across a little bit like that, doesn't it? They don't ask him directly. They're like, you just do what we want, won't you? And it's so revealing because it, it shows that, you know, they're committed. They believe he's the Messiah. Their faith has saved them. There's be no doubt about that at all. But they think that being a son of the Messiah, being a disciple of Christ means that they get privileges and priorities. They're in it for themselves. This is exactly what we see today. Have you ever heard anybody say to you something along the lines of, well, I want to pray for great things from God because, you know, we're king's kids. And they use that phrase or phrases like that to excuse a sort of borderline, and in some cases not even a border, anything, a very explicit um, health, wealth, and prosperity message, you know? Well, I should be able to be rich and 
I should be able to have these things because I'm a king's kid and my father, he's not short of cash, you know. He's all-powerful and I, I should glorify him by, by showing the world that I'm a king's kid and all of this. Guys, that is as immature as James and John right here. It is babyish and it is childish and it is selfish. And more than that, in exactly the same way, as James and John here. It is a complete misunderstanding of the New Testament teaching of discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus does not give you your own parking space. It does not give you your own credit card. It doesn't give you privileges of the rich and famous. Jesus is going to make that abundantly clear, as we shall see. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, don't give me a double talk. Don't try and manipulate me. Just tell me what you want. What is it you want? And so perhaps somewhat embarrassed, because now it's in front of the other ten, they would just say, hey Jesus, you'll give us what we want, won't you? You know, family privilege and all that you give us what we want and jesus and they don't want to actually say it in front of the others and jesus is just tell me what you want and so they do grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory where are their eyes on the glory of the kingdom the whole point of this last few chapters, the lessons that he's been teaching them, the thing he's trying to press upon them or anything else, they have totally and utterly missed it. Blind. Blinded by their own greed. Blinded by their own thirst for glory. Blinded by their pride. And before we're quick to condemn them, It's very easy for us as Christians to be Christians for what we can get out of it. It's very easy for us to fall into that same trap. And equally, it's very easy for us to sit through sermon after sermon after sermon and to remain blind because our own pride keeps us that way. Very easily done. So Jesus says to them in response, bearing in mind this is the final lesson before he goes to the cross. He says to them, you don't know what you're asking. You have not got a clue. You want to be my closest the ones most closely associated with me, the one who sits the nearest to me, the one who is as near to me as anybody else. That's what you want? My goodness, how ignorant. Even Tevye understood better. Remember Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof? 
he says, God, I think it was in the song, on the, the section with the song, If I Were a Rich Man, as he uh, is bemoaning having five daughters, no sons, the costs being a poor man, having a lame horse, and all of that. He says, God, I know we're the chosen people, but could you not choose somebody else for once? He understood. He could look at Jewish history and see that what had been given over to them was more than the covenants and the scriptures, that there was something more. Now, for the disciples here, they didn't understand that. Yeah, we want, what Je we want to have what Jesus is having. He's got the glory. We want to get as close to that glory as we can. You don't understand what you're asking. Why does he get that glory? That's what they're missing. That's what we saw in Philippians 2 in our morning studies. So, he says to them, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? To be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, they are thinking of the cup at the banquet in glory. They want to be the ones that when the wine is served to Christ at the banquet, that their glasses get poured next by the servants. And Jesus is taking that picture of glory and he's using it. And he's saying, there's a cup that I'm going to drink from, all right. You sure you can drink from that cup? And Mark will show us what that cup is by using the same terminology when we come to Gethsemane. He says, are you prepared to be baptized in the way that I'm going to be baptized? That might sound weird to us, but remember what baptized means. It means to immerse. We're not just sipping from a cup here. There is, this is more a taking of a plunge. Something that is an initiation. Something that is life-changing. Something that point, points your life in a completely different direction than it was going in before. Can you take that turn? Can you drink from that cup? Can you? Can you? Yeah, they said. We can. We are able. And so Jesus does something that I am all too aware that God has a tendency to do. And I wish that he didn't but he is wise and he is loving and it is often his way. He says, oh, you want that, do you? That can be arranged. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In other words, yep, my cup of suffering will be yours. 
my baptism of suffering, that'll be yours as well. You want it? You can have it. You want glory. I'm going to give you glory. But glory comes through suffering. And so you'll share in my suffering, and then you'll share in my glory. I've told you this story many times. I don't think I'll ever get bored of saying it. But it was just so vivid to me. I remember being 19, 20 years old, and just being this idealistic Christian. Everything is in black and white, and, you know, oh, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you lead me. Oh, just, you know, strip me away, God. Make me holy. Make me yours, God. I'm all yours. I'm all in. And then, a few years ago, while I'm teaching at a Bible college, I see 19, 20-year-old idealistic people, hands in the air in worship. I'm going to follow you wherever you lead me, Lord. I'm yours. I'm all in. Two decades plus older, I look at them. I remember myself at the same age. Give a wry smile, a little chuckle, and wipe a tear from my eye. And I just think, if only they knew what they're asking. God's going to answer for many of them that prayer. Say, sure, you could drink from my cup. And I tell you, it's, it's, it's a privilege. It's a blessing to drink from that cup. But if you knew what it was, you'd never ask for it. You would never ask for it. Even Christ, in a few chapters' time, will say, if it's possible, take this cup from me. You never ask for the cup. But God is a good God. So sometimes he gives it to us anyway. It's what you want. There you go. There you go. The suffering is theirs. And so the glory that they craved will be theirs as well on the other side. But it is for those... Sorry, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. Isn't that an amazing statement? That, by the way, is part of the practical outworking of the kenosis, the emptying that we spoke of in Philippians 2. In fact, Philippians 2 is all over this passage. Jesus who had authority, Jesus who commanded the world into being. It says, not mine to give, I don't have the authority. <laughs> he's cast, he's put it aside. Why has he put it aside? He's put it aside to come and serve. To come and give his life. And that, that is why he's going to be the one in glory. That's why he's going to be the one in glory. Because he embraced the suffering because he drinks from the cup, because he goes into this baptism of suffering, because he sacrifices and puts aside all of his glory, because of that, 
he will be given a name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Yahweh. But Jesus doesn't have that authority. He says, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The Father, he's more specific in Matthew's Gospel, the Father is the one who will decide. Christ has given away that privilege, that authority. God the Father will decide. But Jesus says, you will drink from my cup, you will share in my suffering, and you will share in my glory. But the degree of glory, well, I think there's an implication here that that will be to do with the degree of suffering, the degree of sacrifice, the degree of commitment. And also just because God has chosen. He's given us roles, he's given us jobs, he's saved us for a purpose. And those who will be closest to Christ in the kingdom, that has been decided. And when they ten heard it, when they've heard this question, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, it's not surprising, really, isn't it? Hey, we want, we want top billing, uh, forget the other ten. They were going to probably ask him privately. It's probably part of the reason for the uh, childish questioning. You know, give us whatever we want, please. Um, no, no, no. They now hear it, and they are not happy. So Jesus for the final time, tries to tell them this lesson concerning pride and humility, suffering and glory, and the kingdom to come. And he says this to them. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's how leadership works in the world. You're the boss, so you tell people what to do and they do what you tell them to and they do what they're told to do and that's how it works. Someone's in charge, someone's underneath and someone does what they're told. But he says it's not going to be that way amongst you. It's going to be different. So you're wanting a privileged position of leadership. You're wanting to have a place where you're served in the kingdom. You're wanting to have a place where you have authority in the kingdom. But you don't know what you're asking for. Because you think that authority is what you're seeing in the world around you. It's not going to be like that. It shall not be so among you. But in contrast, this is, this is how it's going to be. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So you want to be considered great. You don't get considered great by putting yourself above people and making them less. You put yourself below people and make yourself less and then God lifts you up and makes you great. Everything that we've spoken of in Philippians 2, right here from the lips of Christ himself. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. So if they have the general principle, you want to be great, you've got to be less, then you take that to the specific degree that the question originates from. In other words, we want to be the absolute top of the tree in the kingdom. You, you're the boss, right? But we want to be at your left and at your right. We don't want there to be anybody else above us other than you. And Jesus is saying, well, if you want that, you need to understand that to be first. To be the position of highest authority requires someone to be the greatest 
slave. To be the greatest, you have to become the least. And to illustrate that point, to make that point clear, he tells them the example of himself. And this verse is a verse that is crucial, not just to Mark's gospel and to the flow of Mark's argument, but is crucial to the understanding of the entire Bible. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here's the Son of Man inclusio, bookending the passages I refer to. That there earlier, when he says the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests, here again he uses his preferred term for himself, the Son of Man. And you can see now why he's been teaching, while he's been teaching himself as the Son of Man, that this last reference here of Son of Man becomes very powerful in the context of glory and of serving and of giving and of, and of uh, authority. He says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the broad principle he is teaching here is that he himself has come to be the slave of all. He hasn't come to this earth so that people can say, ah, you're the Messiah. Oh, fantastic, let's bow down and worship you because that's obviously why you're here. You're here to be worshipped. No, 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 that's not why he's here. The reason he's here is to teach people, to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and then to die and give his life as a means for people to get into that kingdom. He's come to serve. And he has laid aside more than anyone else. He has sacrificed more than anybody else. And so he will be glorified more than anybody else. That's your model. That's your model right there. Now, I may come back and talk about this more next time. I'm in Mark. But we need to see the link here with the phrase Son of Man. Son of Man, as I've told you several times before, and we've turned there several times in our studies in, uh, in Mark, and we should perhaps turn there again. I think we have time. If we turn to Daniel chapter 7. Son of Man is the expression, it's the phrase that is used in... Uh, losing my notes, uh, that is used in Daniel 7, in the vision. And in Daniel 7 and verse uh, 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, clouds often being used in the sense here of glory, remember the cloud of God going before the Israelites in the wilderness, there came one like a son of man, now, Ezekiel was called son of man. Ezekiel came before Daniel. Ezekiel was called son of man because he was a man. He was in the image of a man. So the expression son of man has been used routinely in a prophet that was a contemporary of Daniel's and, and prophesied just before him. Ezekiel uh, prophesying going into the exile and Daniel obviously there 
in the, in the times of the exile. And Ezekiel is called son of man, which is emphasizing, look, I'm God, and you, you're the son of man. You're just, you're just someone who's descended from a man, who's descended from a man, who's descended from a man. And I am God. So the Son of Man is very much an expression of humility, of, uh, of lowness next to God. And then Daniel comes and he turns that whole thing on its head. And what he does is he says, look, there's this vision, night visions, clouds, clouds being glory at night in the wilderness. The clouds of heaven, there comes one like a son of man. So the one who is coming in the glory of God, the one who is coming in God's glory, is, is like a son of man. He looks just like a man. He looks like one of us. He's just a human being, like Ezekiel was. That's the point. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Man, like Ezekiel, presented before God. We've seen this before, right? Isaiah sees someone high and lifted up. Oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, a people of unclean lips. So man is presented before God. And what happens? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, all nations, all the Gentiles and languages should serve him. This is not just one who is going to rule Israel. This is one who's going to rule the whole world. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is going way, way back to the prophecy of Genesis 3. That the one of the Messiah, the one who would come, the one who would rule and reign, is son of a man. He's a human. Messiah will be a human. And God, he will stand before God, and God will give him all glory. It's an amazing vision. And the reason that this is so different from Isaiah's vision, where Isaiah is presented before God, is that in fact the vision of Isaiah is the same vision. And the one that Isaiah saw high and lifted up upon the throne is the Son of Man who has been given all authority and a kingdom and all dominion. He is one to be worshipped. He is God, and yet he is man. And this is the self-determining expression that Jesus uses of himself. The Son of Man is going to be handed over. Who is the Son of Man in the disciples' eyes? The Son of Man is the one who's going to be given all glory, all dominions, and will have a kingdom that will never end. And Jesus says, that's me, I'm the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is going to be handed over, and he's going to be arrested, and he's going to be given over to be killed, he's going to be spat on, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be flogged, and he is going to die. That's the Son of Man. 
And what Jesus is doing with this final reference of this final section of this discipleship training that we've been witnessing for chapter after chapter is he's, he's, he's putting, for those who have eyes to see, he's putting this last crucial bit of information in. He's saying, the Son of Man has come not to receive glory, not to lord it over people. He has come to serve because the one who is going to be first must be the servant of all. What he's doing is he's saying, hey, you know that son of man you know about who's going to receive all the glory, all dominion, all kingdoms, receive worship from all the world? That son of man is going to be the servant of all the world. And that is why he's going to receive all the glory. We've already seen in our Philippian studies, Paul put it all together pretty well. He understood that the humility of Christ is what leads to the glory of Christ. And the disciples are saying, we want that glory. And Jesus is, you don't know what you're asking. Do you know how that comes about? There are some on earth who receive much glory, who will receive no glory in the life to come. And there are many who serve in secret and receive no glory in this earth. And they will get much glory in the kingdom to come. I think I will leave it there because that really wraps up nicely the flow of the passage, the point that Jesus is teaching, and the, the shocking realization of how the Son of Man of Daniel 7 receives his glory. But that doesn't mean we're finished with this section. I want to come back to this verse next time. I want to talk more about what it means to be a ransom for many. I want to talk about the Old Testament background to this from Isaiah 53 and elsewhere and have a closer look at what this means. And so we'll leave it there for tonight, but we will, when next time we're in Mark, we'll come back and we'll look at this verse again because there's a lot more to dig out of it. But the lesson for the disciples and the lesson for us is this. You want the glory, you drink from the cup. You want to be a ruler, you've got to be a servant. It's a hard lesson, we never learn it. But I pray that we won't be as blind as the disciples. Let's pray. Father, we, we sometimes ask and we don't even know what we're asking. Be merciful upon us, Lord, we pray. Help us to humble ourselves so that you won't have to humble us. But may we serve you and may we follow you wherever it leads. 
less of us, more of you. Amen.